News, Notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a foul. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, January 31st. Show number four of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. And we'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola discussing the usefulness of mock drafts, target drafting, and the composite player. And I'll have an edition of Master Notes talking about unlucky pitchers. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers report in less than a week. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, it's true. Most of baseball will see pitchers and catchers report to spring training around February 14th. But the Diamondbacks pitchers and catchers will report a week earlier. On February 6th, the Dodgers report on the 8th, all because those two clubs will be starting the regular season a little bit early in Sydney, Australia. Arizona and L.A. will play a night game on Saturday, March 22nd, about 1 in the morning Pacific time and 4 a.m. Eastern coming from Australia. Then there's an afternoon game on Sunday the 23rd, which will start at 10 p.m. Pacific or 1 in the morning Eastern time. Both games are at the Sydney Cricket Ground, and the Diamondbacks will be the home team. So, if someone loops a short fly just inside the right field line, will Vin Scully get to call it a fair dinkum? Now the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Some interesting stuff at BaseballHQ.com this week, talking about... Uh, average draft positions in some instances and uh for example in the market pulse column miguel montero the arizona catcher seems to have a big difference between where he's being drafted in mock drafts versus where baseball hq thinks he should be drafted based on his value yeah very definitely i mean he's a, there's a, a huge differential between our projection on miguel montero and where he's he's, he's getting uh, picked up in uh, in drafts and if, miguel montero had a bad year last year he burned a lot of guys uh, certainly did not do anything like what we expected him to do. If you look back at what happened last year, there are a couple of things going on. First of all, our expectations may have been unreasonably high. I mean, he had a 239 uh, XBA in 2012 in spite of a 286 batting average. So maybe expecting the guy to hit 280 again was, was a little bit of a stretch. But there were a lot of things that went wrong for Miguel Montero last year. Ground ball rate was the highest it's been since he's been in the major leagues, 47% compared to 43, 42, 38. So that was off. Hit rate was the lowest it's been since he's been in the major leagues, uh, 29% compared to 32, 33, 32. So a lot of little things going wrong for Miguel Montero last year that weren't entirely his fault. Now, 
there were some things that were his fault. His contact rate was down a little bit. Uh, he was hitting a few more ground balls last year than usual. The result was 11 home runs, 42 RBIs, 230 batting average. The question is, can the guy bounce back? Well, I, you know, I think if we look at, at the fact that he had a lot of bad luck last year, he's only 30 years old. Uh, we know that catchers uh, sometimes blossom uh, blossom late, so I wouldn't expect uh, offensive uh, 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 him to tail off too much offensively at age 30. In fact, he could just be entering his prime as a hitter around age 30, 31, 32 as a catcher. So, yeah, I think there's a good chance that Miguel Montero bounces back. I'm not sure he'll bounce all the way back to what we saw in uh, – in 2009 when he hit 294 with 16 home runs but here's a guy that really could bounce back to 15 home runs a good 260 270 batting average and that's not bad for a catcher not bad for a catcher nick but i'm going to play the devil's advocate here just for a second you mentioned that montero's ground ball percentage is a concern at 47 percent and that it might be an anomaly it'll get fixed next year but i'm looking back to about 2010 his Ground ball percentage rate was around 38%, and in the intervening years, it has steadily risen, 42, 43, 47. And that starts to look like a trend in ground ball percentage, which worries me because it's going to affect the hit rate, and that in turn is going to affect batting average. Now, to be fair, the column at BaseballHQ.com doesn't say go out and get Miguel Montero at any price. It says... Be aware that this is a guy that you could get maybe in the 12th or 13th round who might return you 8th or ninth round value, and that's not bad. It'll turn you a profit. And I think the thing to look at, Adam Miguel Martin, and you're absolutely right, we're not talking about a huge bounce back here. It wouldn't take much for him to get back to 260 batting average and another four or five home runs, and suddenly he's got some value. Uh, and, and there's some reasons in that, uh, in that uh, uh, Arizona lineup this year that that might happen, maybe a few more RBI chances. So... You know, I, I think he's a guy worth taking a chance on, uh, and certainly uh, a lot of guys are kind of trashing Miguel Montero at this point. I'm seeing in keeper leagues and getting dropped and, and, and sold for very low value. A good time, I think, to buy low. Yeah, even last year, given the uh, poor performance, he was worth about 4 bucks or so in a 5x5 five five league, and if you get 4 bucks value for a dollar at the end of the draft, that's not bad. Like everything else we talk about, Nick, it's a question of cost. If you can get Miguel Montero at a, for a dollar or two at the end of the draft or in the 20th round or the 18th round or something, he's a hell of a buy. But if you think he might return eighth round value and you pick him up in the eighth round or you think he could be a $7 catcher and you bid the $7, then you're, you're basically betting the highest possible outcome and your chances of being disappointed are pretty good. Absolutely. Moving on, Greg Ambrosius, who runs the uh, National Fantasy Baseball Championship, he does a great job, and he also writes really frequently for BaseballHQ.com talking about the NFBC. And this week he has what he calls his penny stocks column, and that's guys whose value has really dropped because of past performance, particularly last year, and whose average draft position as a result has dropped significantly. And these present, he says, some buying opportunities, and the first of them is third baseman Pablo Sandoval of San Francisco. You know, Pablo Sandoval is one of those one of those guys whose whose performance bounces around a lot, and and honestly seems to depend a bit on his weight. Um, if you look at last season, Pablo Sandoval had a, a, a fairly uh, a, a bad first half, two seventy four, only eight home runs. Supposedly lost twenty pounds, and suddenly in the second half began to blossom a little bit. Batting average was up, a power index was up. Uh, PX of 74 in the first half, up to 106 in the second half. So here's a guy who's got, we, we know this is a guy who's got a weight problem. And when he lets it get to him, uh, when his weight goes up, 
he has a problem hitting the baseball with, with great authority. So you're taking your chances, I think, on Pablo Sandoval's conditioning and on his weight, but certainly there is a lot of talent there. Uh, contact rate is, is in, in last year was right around 85%. Uh, ground ball rate right around 40%. Uh, fly ball rate was actually up in the second half last year from 35% to 39%. So a lot of ability here if you can keep the weight under control. Now that's certainly an issue we have nothing to, uh, th that we can't measure very well. But what you've got with Pablo Sandoval is he's heading into his free agent season. He has supposedly dropped uh, dropped uh, a lot of weight in the winter league. And we'll see what he's where he is when he comes to camp. But here's a guy who could surprise uh, if he gets into fighting weight. <laughs> fighting weight, yeah. Uh, and he's only 27. I mean, it seems like he's been around forever. And, of course, a guy of his size always tends to look a little older. But this is going to be his age 27 year. And w when I look at players like this, again, with all of the cautions and don't buy the peak or anything like that, but the peak is pretty interesting. He's had two seasons in the last six, 09 and, and 011, that he was well up in the high 20s or in the mid to high 20s in 5x5 in five five value. Which means that if you can pick up this guy for what do you think, fourteen, sixteen bucks, you'd stand a pretty good chance of at least getting your money back. That's what he earned last year. But there's an outside chance that if he's really uh, got himself into into better condition and and has a chance at a, at a peak year again, you're looking at a possibility of ten or eleven bucks of profit. That, that this is this is the kind of thing you have to be aware of. Yeah, very definitely. You're right. you're talking about a guy who's twenty seven years years old and already has five full major league seasons under his belt and part of a sixth. So uh, here's a guy who came up young. He's got a lot of experience right now. Uh, if he can get uh, get some things under control, a lot of talent there that uh, could pay off big if you can get him uh, inexpensively. Another guy to whom this uh, bad season um, causing a, a big drop in ADP applies is Starlin Castro of the Cubs. I remember going into draft last year, Starlin Castro was everybody's darling. He was being bid up like crazy at Tau Ors in both the – the uh, National League League and the Mixed League. Everybody thought Starlin Castro was going to be the next Jose Reyes, and it didn't turn out that way. And now he's uh, dropping down considerably in the in the ADPs, and maybe this is a buying opportunity. Yeah, I think it definitely is. I mean, let's let's start with where, where we are with Starlin Castro. The guy's 24 years old. He's got four full seasons under his belt at, at age 24. So he's nowhere near near his peak, peak performance. So, you know, you've, you've got to sometimes give him a pass on a bad season. And last year certainly was that. I mean, there were there were lots of problems. His XBA was down uh, almost 20 points. Uh, his his ground ball rate was up uh, to 51 percent. It was as high as it's ever been since he's been in the major leagues. His um, his hit rate dropped below 30 percent for the first time in his major league career, uh, and, and his speed seemed to drop. You know, so the, everything sort of went wrong for Starling Castro last year. And and to make matters worse, uh, the uh, uh, the Cubs, the Cubs fired uh, their hitting coach in July, uh, and uh, Starlight Castro didn't seem to do too well in adjusting after that, and, and things just got from bad to worse. I mean, certainly it looked that he was probably pressing a bit uh, because his uh, he, he was having some uh, some trouble making contact at various times. So, and actually looked bad out there on the, in the in, on the field. Uh, so, I think there's a real chance that Starlight Castro bounces back really well, just given age and talent. I mean, here's a guy that hit uh, that hit 307 in 2011, down to 245 last year. XBA says that was deserved, but there's uh, a guy I'd be willing to take a chance on. And Nick, when I look at it, his skills, while they have not been uh, outstanding, 
have certainly been consistent. He came into the league in 2010, 6% walk rate and 85% contact rate. Since that time, his walk rate has been 4.56, his contact rate 85-86, down to 81 last year. His strikeouts definitely were up a little bit, but it's not a catastrophic drop. It's not like he dropped out of the 80s into the you know, high 60s or low 70s. And his value has... <clears throat> His value has peaked at 29% in 2011. He followed it up with a decent season in 2012 at 25 bucks. Now he's fallen back off to $10. This is another situation where we know what the peak is. The peak is a near $30 player. So if you can buy him for that 8 or 10 bucks that he earned last year or a, or a uh, you know, mid-seventh round ADP based on uh, a $10 season, then you know that you're probably going to get at least that even if he stays in his funk, and you know that the upside is you could get a $30 year. Right, very definitely. And finally, Greg Ambrosius looked at a pitcher, a number of pitchers actually, but one that caught my eye was Johnny Cueto of Cincinnati, an injury-riddled year uh, that I suffered through because I drafted him at Tout Wars along with Cole Hamels contributing to the general pitching disaster. Uh, Johnny Cueto, another guy being drafted very low that has some potential to really return some profit. I mean, we're looking at a hundred a hundred player difference in draft rate on Johnny Cueto from a year ago. Drafted... uh, 87 in uh, 2013, down to 182 at this point. And when Johnny Cueto played last year, he was actually very good. The problem was he wasn't on the field very much. I mean, here's a guy that if you look at those 11 starts that he had, a 2.82 ERA, I mean, we'll take that. A 1.05 whip, you'll take that in any league you're in if the guy plays long enough to to make it worthwhile. And that was the problem. He had a strained lad. He had back problems. He had, had some shoulder problems. And my guess is... You know, I, I had Johnny Cueto on a team, too, and I was always anxious to get him back in the field. And my guess is the same thing was happening with Cincinnati. He, they, they tried to get him back in the field, and probably a little too early. Uh, and so then the, the lat strain, uh, he restrained it, and, you know, you've got this problem over again. So he goes back in the DL. So my guess is he never got completely well, uh, and that, the, that those injuries just kind of kept happening last year. But the performance when he was on the field was there. So here's a guy that, uh, if you look at that, look at BPV, 99 in 2012, 93 last year. So it's all about health. If Johnny Cueto is healthy enough to pitch a, a full season of ball games, uh, then he's going to do very, very well. And my guess is, if I were betting, uh, and the, the, the baseball forecaster kind of says to this too, uh, don't bet on a 200-inning pitch season given last year's injuries. Bet on about 150 innings and buy at that level. But uh, here's a guy who's got a good chance of bouncing back. And even if he does give you 150 innings, in 2011, with basically the same skill set, he did pitch 150 innings, 156 to be exact. And, of course, because he misses time, that costs him some wins and it costs him some strikeouts. Still a $16 player. So, again, here's a case where you have an opportunity to buy even a modest ceiling of $16 to $18 if you can get it for way less, if you can get it three rounds uh, later than that value, you could be doing pretty well with Johnny Cueto. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, you know, here's a guy that uh, uh, with, with he's he's put up an ERA under three three consecutive years, and if you can get him in uh, at 180 uh, average draft position and, and take a little bit of a chance on the uh, on the health issue, yeah, I'd say go for it. And not a bad strikeout guy, Nick. Are you worried at all that Johnny Cueto has put together, as you said, three straight years under three, well under three in, in the instance of 2011? But all three of those years, his expected ERA was a full run higher, 364, 359, 327. So it was headed in the right direction downwards, but 
boy, that seems like a huge gap between his actual ERA and his expected ERA, which normally would be a cautionary sign that there's going to be some kind of uh, re- um, correction coming that moves Johnny Cueto's ERA upwards. And perhaps, you know, even if you split the difference, you're talking about a 310 or 312 ERA rather than a 350, I mean a 250 ERA. Well, you know, that's certainly something you have to look at. But, but you know, there becomes a point when a guy consistently uh, uh, outpitches his XERA that you begin to say, all right, this this measurement doesn't do exactly what we want it to do. And he may be actually a tad better than that. And that, that may be where we are with Johnny Cueto. Yeah, it, it definitely happens on a case-by-case basis. Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Have a good week. Harold Nichols covers the National League for Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com writer Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD, good to be here. Let's start out in the American League Central this week in Kansas City. Matt Gelfand of BaseballHQ.com has a facts and flukes column this past week in which he touted first baseman Eric Hosmer as a prime breakout candidate, but he qualified it by saying this is a cautious kind of uh, recommendation. What do you think of Eric Hosmer? Well, if you look at Hosmer's uh, history, he had a really fluky season back in 2012. He hit 232, but he had an expected batting average of about 30 points higher. So clearly some bad luck uh, in, in the form of a 26% hit rate was a culprit there. But Hosmer turned it around last year with a 302 batting average and combined with his typical high expected batting average, it was 287. The thing I like about Hosmer is, is that he makes consistently hard contact contact as as noted by our hard contacts index um, and this this measures obviously how hard uh, a hitter is hitting the ball and Hosmer's scorching it his biggest obstacle particularly for a first baseman is that even though he's hitting it hard he's not putting it in the air which puts a ceiling on his home run power his ground ball rate's been about 50 percent now for the last three seasons and the rest of his plate skills look pretty stable now, he has two positives in that he's still young at 24, and he's made some nice gains against left-handed pitching in, in 2013. And if, if you can pay for a 280, 290 hitter with 15, 20 home runs, I, I think Cosmer's a good investment. There probably is some 25 home run upside here, but uh, he really needs to improve that fly ball rate. Turning that around, though, uh, uh, Jock, uh, in some respects, his ground ball percentage being as high as it is, might be a bit of a help to him in the batting average category because he's fast. For a big guy, he steals a fair number of bases. He's got good speed, and when he puts the ball in play on the ground, he doesn't make outs at the same rate he, that most people do when they hit fly balls. I think this is one of those situations where Hosmer's kind of a good bet either way. If he does get the ball in the air, he's going to hit more home runs, and if he doesn't, he's going to hit 300. And either way, that's not a bad thing to get as long as everything else stays in place. And I think the stolen bases might be uh, um, kind of the secret weapon here for Eric Hosmer. Yeah, that's a good point, PD. Um, he, he's definitely got a floor under his under his batting average. He has enough speed. He runs a little bit. Um, and as you say, he, he, he looks like he's a 280, 290, 300 hitter, regardless of, of what he does with his, uh, his ground ball fly ball rate. You mentioned his uh, hard contact index. It was 128 last year, and that is a metric that measures how often a guy hits the ball hard, and 100 is league average. So 128 is getting up there towards uh, the elite status in that particular category. Miguel Cabrera is usually around the 150s if you're keeping score at home and you want to know you know, what are the very best players rating it uh, for a hard contact index. It's around 150. So Hosmer at 128 is halfway there. 
above, well above league average. Uh, Gelfand's facts and flukes column jock also looked at Mitch Moreland, another first baseman, and you covered him in your American League West Playing Time Tomorrow column, which you called Ripple Casualties, which was a great title, by the way. You say Moreland's going to be unfairly overlooked this season, and I'm wondering why you would say that, given that we know Prince Fielder's going to get most of the share at first base. Why are you so confident about Mitch Moreland? Well, it's it's not so much that I'm 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 confident about Moreland, but but like you mentioned, he's been he's been displaced by Prince Fielder, and there's no room in the outfield either after the Shinsu Chu signing. It leaves Moreland at DH, and the problem there is that the Angels also now have right-handed hitting Michael Choice, who's probably going to see some at-bats against left-handed pitchers, which puts Moreland up in a platoon role. Now, he hit 232 in 2013, and he had a, a second consecutive terrible September during which the Rangers have just been awful the last two years. So he's he seems to be kind of on the outs in Texas. He hit 195, actually, in the second half. But the thing I like about Moreland is that his his metric suggests that his contact rate isn't awful, and he too is hitting the ball hard. And he's got really good power. He had a 143 power index last year. He hit 23 home runs in spite of the batting average. And he also has handedness and age working for him. My take here is that he's going to go late in many drafts and that he's going to be pretty available in keeper leagues because of what he did in the second half. And that he can only move up from here. I, I think power's been become relatively scarce in recent years, and I think he can help fantasy owners there. And he might be one of these players, Jock, that if he falls into a platoon role, it might actually help. You know, there are a great number of players who, if you could, you you take them and and during the year they just kill you against one hand a pitcher or the other, and you think to yourself, boy, if this guy only played against right-handers, would he be great? And maybe for Mitch Moreland, it's going to be a situation where all he does is play against the guys that he can really rake. Yeah, that's another real good point, PD. I think the thing that Moreland has to do is, is is somehow find some more consistency. His September's the last two seasons, he has hit 150 and 150 at-bats and only three home runs. And when your team is just, just choking badly down the stretch like Texas had, it becomes very noticeable. Yeah, it is. And as you mentioned, they might have other, um, other alternatives for that DH spot. And uh, are you surprised... Uh, if I was Moreland, I'd be surprised and disappointed that Prince Fielder's going to get the actual playing time at first base because Moreland's actually a pretty good fielder. And field, Prince Fielder, for his last name notwithstanding, is not a really good fielder. And I wonder why wouldn't they, unless Prince Fielder has told him he won't DH, really it should be that he's DHing, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And I and obviously that has to do with contract and, and Fielder's status there. Um, I think you're going to see Moreland get his, his reps at first base, and you'll find Fielder DH a little bit. But obviously they're not going to tell Prince Fielder that he's a DH when he wants to play first base. I have read that uh, it's actually in his contract that he won't DH more than a certain number of at-bats in a year. And Moreland has some uh, skill as an outfielder as well. They lost David Murphy over the um, offseason but gained Shinsu Chu. So maybe some at-bats for Moreland in the outfield. Yeah, I think his versatility works for him. That's another reason I like him. He can play a corner outfield, left field. He can play first base. Obviously, he's going to DH. Um, I think if uh, if his owners are looking down on him because he's a forgotten man, there it's it's a good chance to a good time to strike. Speaking of Texas, J.P. Arancibia, formerly of uh, Toronto, was non-tendered by the Blue Jays during the offseason, signed in Texas, and he's going to try to help Giovanni Soto as a team replace A.J. Przinsky 
who uh, went on to the Red Sox as a free agent, so musical chairs in the catcher position. Aaron Seabia has got great power, and he was covered this week in the Market Pulse column by Matt Cederholm and mentioned as an endgame candidate, but not too positively. What's the problem with Aaron Seabia? Well, as most of his owners know, um, Aaron Sibby is coming off a season in which he hit just 194. Now, like you said, his power isn't in doubt at all. He hit 21 homers and 474 at-bats. But when you hit 21 homers and you can only earn $1 in 5 by 5 formats, obviously you're, you're kind of a one-trick pony. Uh, his hit rate wasn't that kind to him, but Aaron Sibby's plate skills are atrocious, especially that 4% to 5% uh, walk rate that he's had for the past couple seasons and a contact rate that has been stuck at about 69-70% his entire career. Now, he doesn't a lot of, uh, offer a lot of batting average upside from here. He might hit 220 or 230 at a, at, in a best-case scenario. And frankly, if you look at our projections and the news coming out of Arlington, it's actually likely that, that Giovanni Soto gets the majority of the Ranger catching at bats this season. He's got the same type of power there in Sibia. Uh, does and he's a low contact hitter but he has more patience and he plays better defense so if one is tempted at all I'd personally go after Soto here yeah I would too uh, the the 21 home runs are nice but if this uh, catcher if any player frankly gets a, a 200 batting average over 500 at bats that many at bats can really kill you I did the calculation once and for a 6,000 at bat fantasy team if you've got uh, 500 at bats of 200 batting average on there. It's going to drop you about six points, and that's enough to cost you three or four, or five points in the category in rotos. Even if I needed 21 home runs, I'd be leery about grabbing them from a guy like this. Yeah, exactly. This this is a guy who who can who when he squares it up. I mean, he hits it a long way, but he just doesn't square it up enough. The ancillary to that is that a guy who strikes out as much as this, even though he hits 21 home runs, is always going to be an RBI liability given the amount of at-bats you'd expect way more RBIs but of course you can't drive in runs when you're striking out all the time Uh, getting back to your column the ripple casualties in the American League West you also talked about relief pitcher Ryan Cook of Oakland as a casualty because Oakland of course acquired both Jim Johnson and Luke Gregerson and really shored up their bullpen but that seems to leave a guy like Ryan Cook on the outside looking in how does this affect his value in in the greatly upgraded bullpen in Oakland well, I, I think a lot of us who owned Cook, and, I, and I'm again, I'm one of them, um, he was coming off of two seasons in which he whiffed over a batter an inning. He posted sub-three ERAs and racked up strikeouts at a 47% clip. So we were hoping that he would be the internal replacement for uh, the departing Grant Balfour. But, of course, now that uh, Jim Johnson has come over from Baltimore, that's not going to happen. And it's a real deep pen. So a lot of people or are, are, a lot of owners are disappointed that, that Cook isn't going to get the saves. But if you look at his skills and, and if you look at Johnson's skills, I don't think all is lost for Cook. I mean, Johnson is going to be a, a free agent after this year, and he's probably going to go the way, way of Balfour. Uh, Cook is still under club control. Um, I still think there is a chance that he could close at some point. And, and, if, and if, you look at, if you look at Johnson, he's mostly a ground ball pitcher. His, his strikeout uh, per nine innings have always been a little bit light. And I honestly wonder how much Johnson is going to benefit from pitching in Oakland. He doesn't put the ball in the air a lot, which is a real advantage to playing in Oakland. There's a lot of foul ball uh, territory there, and the, the home run dimensions are, are pretty significant. I would not be surprised to see Cook get a few saves this year and maybe even next year after Johnson departs. So uh, he still offers value, um, particularly in, in, in a rotation spot where you might have a risky starting pitcher. Uh, I'm still a Ryan Cook fan. 
I like Ryan Cook too, and uh, I think that especially if you happen to be in a keeper or dynasty format, Ryan Cook might not be a bad guy to have for exactly the reasons you cite. Jim Johnson's a one-year deal. Who knows where he's going to go next? Uh, seems to be a kind of a mercenary, have gun, will travel kind of guy. Maybe Ryan Cook, maybe not this year, possibly this year, but also maybe next. And in the meantime, going to give you fantastic numbers, uh, great uh, strikeouts, a lot, very low ERA in his innings. He's good. Finally, Jock, uh, Josh Hamilton is coming off a really disappointing first year with the Angels. And Greg Ambrosius, I talked about his uh, NFBC column at BaseballHQ.com with Harold Nichols a few moments ago. He also mentioned Hamilton having bulked up back to his former weight when he was playing for the Rangers. But so far, it sounds like uh, NFBC drafters, at least, aren't buying the hype. His average draft position is right around 100, which was unthinkable even a couple of years ago. What's your take? You're down there in Anaheim. What do you think of Josh Hamilton's outlook as a fantasy guy? Well, I'm with the drafters who are skeptical of Hamilton returning to his peak form. Look, he, he still has the power and the power upside, but his second-half batting average rebound last season was pretty much all hit rate fueled. His contact rate hasn't budged. It's been in the low 70s now for two consecutive seasons. He looked better against left-handed pitching in the second half last year. But overall, overall, there were stretches where he just flailed at them, he, he, like he couldn't even see the ball. Um, add the fact that he's not in home run friendly Arlington anymore, and I see another 20, 20 to 25 home run, uh, 255, 260 batting average season. And obviously that's helpful, but it's not vintage Josh Ham- Hamilton, and, and obviously it's not worth $125 million over five years either. The question is, how much is it worth from a fantasy perspective? Baseball HQ is projecting about 18 bucks. You're going to take the over or the under? Boy, that, that's a real tough call. I, I might take slightly over. The one thing the Angels do have, and it's, it's nothing you can measure, they have Don Baylor coming in as a hitting coach. Um, it'll be interesting to see if ha- Hamilton can respond to whatever Don says, but uh, I wouldn't take much over that. The, thing, the one thing I like about Josh Hamilton as a 100th overall pick for ADPs or an $18 guy is we know what the upside is. We've seen this guy have an MVP caliber season. We've seen him earn in the high 30s, low 40s. If you can get him for 18 bucks, you can be, I think, fairly confident that you're going to get your 18 bucks worth barring injury. And the possibility is there that you could double your money. That's exactly right. I think last year was his downside. I think he's obviously, as you mentioned, going to do that again. Um, if you pay that for him, um, there is a potential of upside. All right, Jock, thanks very much for talking with us, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, sounds good. Jock Thompson is a BaseballHQ.com columnist, the director of news and analysis, and our American League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of Baseball HQ, with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. If you can't get enough of the great analysis from Patrick and the rest of the gang on Baseball HQ Radio, you're ready for a subscription to BaseballHQ.com. The insights you get on this podcast are just the tip of the iceberg. Come see everything else we have to offer, now at a special rate for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off a draft prep or full season subscription to Baseball HQ. Give yourself everything you need to dominate your league in 2014. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt, pleased now to have our regular Friday Talk with Todd, with Todd Zola from BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com. Heck, Todd, you're all over the place. Welcome back to the show. 
Thanks, Patrick. Great to be back. I wanted to start off talking about mock drafts. It's getting to that time of year where there's a lot of mock drafts out there, both for regular folks to just go online and practice their drafting and uh, also a lot of expert mock drafts, which are starting to define what got, what players are worth as far as draft pick rounds or auction values. And I'm wondering, how useful do you think mock drafts are for regular fantasy players? I actually find them very useful, but perhaps for different reasons than maybe you know, generally considered. I think some people will do a mock draft to get an idea uh, of where a player may fall, what the market value is, what round they have to draft that player in. For me, that's the, the absolute least of my considerations. I, you know, I don't believe in ADPs. I, I don't trust them. I trust my ranks and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but I still find some other utilities of mock drafts uh, such, you know, to me, it's the players are just the, the puzzle pieces. To me, the mock's a puzzle, and the more puzzles you do, the better you get at at solving puzzles. So I kind of look at it from that from that angle. Okay. So and and how do you work that? You're looking at it as a series of puzzle pieces. How do they help you put it together? Whether we want to admit it or not, we all have our our pet players and our our favorite strategies that we seem to rely on, and usually because they work and because you know we like those players more. But especially in a draft situation, you're at the mercy of 10 or 11 or 15 or whatever it might be, other, other players. And you may not get your pet player. Or the players that help you with your favorite strategy may not be there at your turn. And what I, you know, your opponents can force you into, into, in, an, in an uncomfortable area. So what I like to do in mocks is purposely put myself out of my comfort zone. So that in a draft, if it works out that way, I'll have experienced something similar, if not the same, you know, phenomena of, of picks gone or, or, or the situation. So I'm able to better handle it, you know, when money's on the line or, or credibility's on the line or, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. So I try to do as many different things as possible. Uh, don't take a player that I like in the particular round and, let, you know, then or wait on pitching or take pitching earlier or... Uh, don't take second baseman, third baseman, and shortstops for the first six rounds uh, right. to see if you can still build a team, you know, picking those sort of players later. Do a whole bunch of different things just so you see as many different scenarios as possible. Todd, you said you don't trust the ADPs that much to come out of mock drafts, and uh, I wondered why that is. If you If you aggregate enough of them, it seems that you could trust, you know, 100 mock drafts that put uh, Shinsu Chu in the third round. You could start feeling pretty confident that that's what the market thinks. Um, I, don't, I don't really care what the market – well, I care what the market thinks in that I have a feel for what – you know, to, te- for, to, to sort of use what I think. You know, I care what I think. I care where I think Shinsu Chu is going to go. Um, so, yeah, there are occasions where you can use the ADP to help time a pick or two. Uh, so you can, you know, put a little bit more potential on your roster than if you, you know, just follow an ADP. So, you know, there is, there is a use to an ADP. Uh, it's usually later in the draft for me, or more middle of, middle of, the, middle of the draft. Um, I'm just more the kind of guy, I mean, if I want a guy in, and I feel he will perform to the level expected of that draft spot, I don't want to play around with the ADP and say, oh, I could wait a round or two or this or that. Uh, more often than not, if he 
if I feel he'll perform to that level, I'll take him because all it takes is one more guy out there to uh, to feel the same way, and he's gone. He, you know, they'll look at they'll look at the ADP, and they'll jump the player up a round or two to make sure they get him, and he's gone. So I'm more concerned about filling the expectations of the spot at the time than I am uh, whether it's the right round or too early or too late or that sort of thing. I, I can see the argument that would say, Todd, you're missing out on some profit opportunities. If you have a guy slotted in round 11 and the market has him at 17 or, or 14, you might be able to wait till the 12th and get basically two 11ths for an 11 and a 12. But um, it, it, there, there are a number of views, and we're going to, uh, we're going to have to uh, think it out for ourselves. I like your idea of making sure that you get value for value in a round. Uh, well, I mean, I said there are times where it is useful, but I think people get – are too slave to an ADP sometimes, right. and in their head, they're no longer thinking what they think about a player. They're thinking what the market thinks about a player and drafting a player accordingly. Sure, I mean, there are times when I will time picks accordingly and wait, especially if there's a tier of players and not just a single player that I can, mm-hmm. that I can, that I can wait on. If you're waiting on a single player, you might get burned, but if you're waiting on a tier of players, you'll probably get one or two. You know, you, so that's that. There is, I, mean, I don't completely throw it out the window. I'm just not a slave to it like some people are. In a recent column at BaseballHQ.com, Todd, you said you're no longer as big a proponent of target drafting as you were even a few years ago. Uh, why, why is that? Well, first, uh, just to explain to the listeners a little bit, target drafting is a, a term that's often used to describe the tactic of uh, looking at previous year's standings and more often than not, if you finish third or fourth, depending on the size of your league, third in smaller leagues, fourth in larger leagues, if you finish in, in third place across the board, you're going to accrue enough points to, to be called champion at the end of the year. So what a lot of people did, and I, you know, I'm going to admit, I, was, I may have been the first analyst to actually publish targets from different, from different size drafts um, and talk about you know, the, the, the concept of, of target drafting. But, you know, you come into the draft or auction with the goal of putting as many, you know, putting that many stats on your team. You know, if you need, if, if the last year 220 home runs put you in third, you shoot for 220 home runs and you do that across the board. And for, for several years, I, I did that and I, you know, tried to hit my targets and that sort of thing. And now, as you suggest, I, I, I no longer favor that uh, as, a stra- as a drafting tool, mainly because... I, don't know, I may be doing this for ten years, and I, I think I um, I'm, let's see, I'm trying to think of the number of drafts I didn't hit my targets. I think there was none, and now I'm trying to think of the years. You know, I, I won a couple of those leagues. I didn't get shut out, but I I didn't win every single league, and it just I just began to think about it and and, and just talking to people. If you after a draft, if there's twelve people in a draft, I guarantee twelve of them think they hit their targets, uh, and it just to me is. I just began thinking about it, and why is that? You know, you're using biased, well, biased project. You're using your own projections. Uh, you're, you're taking the players you like. You're not taking the players you don't like. Uh, if you don't hit your targets, it's more a. Uh, it speaks more towards your drafting strategy than it does anything else to me. Um, and, and then I, you know, is there anything negative about trying to hit the targets? And I think there is. I, I think what you start to do is I think you start to try to win the draft as opposed to trying to win the league. 
and you don't generally win the draft. You generally pick up between 60 and 90 percent of the statistics that you put on your roster by year's end. That's how many you draft. There's still 10 to to 40 percent of stats that you're going to get via injury placement or or reserve list or minor leagues or something like that. Fab, yeah. Uh, so you know, putting it all together, you know, if if I'm drafting a guy that I don't know, um, Matt Adams as an example, you we may have him for 25 home runs. There's a whole lot of variability around that 25 home runs. He could he could slump and they could put Alan Craig back at first and call up Tavares and he could get 10 homers, or he could. You know, he could hit from day one and learn how to hit lefties, and he could hit 35 homers. But we're putting 25 homers towards our target, and we think, we got, you know, we think we're 25 closer to whatever that goal may be. And I want, I want to consider the upside, the downside, and the range, and, and, that, and that sort of thing, and not just try to reach my target. I think you get a little myopic. Yeah, to me, though, whenever I started thinking about it for, for many years, there were a couple of negatives. And the first one you just uh, referred to is the idea of the variability of the stats in the projections. So you say that Matt Adams is going to hit 25 home runs. The range, the legitimate range to one standard deviation is going to be, what, from 17 to 33, something like that. And that means to do yourself justice in your targeting, you have to say at all times, what's the range and what's my total range in this in this particular category for every guy. And then you have to total up the minimums and the maximums. And really, by the end of the day, you don't know what you have except as a, a, a nominal value. But the bigger problem for me was I found when I when I used target drafting, Todd, that I was, I'd be in my draft and I'd start to realize, hey, I'm, I'm not going to make my target in stolen bases or saves particularly, and that get, got me into a panic. I have to get the next available stolen base guy, which results in overpaying for the stolen bases, and that has cascading effects throughout your auction or draft that now you've blown a, a draft slot or you've blown a bunch of money to get back on track for that target, and all of a sudden you realize you don't have enough money to get all your other targets. Right, and that it, it depends if you're a trading league or a non-trading league. Um, I think balance is more important you know, people out there non-trading leagues, um, the, the high stakes uh, avenue are non-trading leagues. And, and some players like myself that not just high stakes, that just play a lot of different leagues. Um, just to save time and be able to play in more leagues, I, I play in some non-trading leagues. Because that, you know, in season, that's what takes up the time. And you don't want to be the guy that doesn't respond to an email when, when, a, when a lab mate, a league mate, you know, wants to make a trade with you. So I sort of tend towards that sort of thing. And you want balance. And I'll track I'll track homers versus steals, uh, not so much for, you know, to, to reach my target, but just to see that I'm, like, try to keep in balance, as you suggest, so that at the end of the day you're not, you're not you know, leaving, leaving potential on the table to just to meet a category. Um, so yeah, I, I you know I do I do agree with that, and just in, in general, I mean, you just got to ask the question: Is I mean, is drafting a player that you think is best for your team at the time any different than just drafting towards a target? I think I think ultimately it's the same thing. I mean, I'm not saying you can't win if you use target you know category drafting. I think you win you know in spite of it, but I don't you know I it's it's um it, it could be semantics I don't know, but um you know I've I've kind of shone away from it. In that same column at BaseballHQ.com, Todd, you introduced the to- uh, concept that you call the composite player. Talk about that. Yeah, this is sort of my, 
I don't know, I'm not, you know, don't come to the don't don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution sort of thing. So I you know, I don't want to just say I don't like target drafting, you know, what do you like instead? Um, I kind of ca- came up with the concept of it, it's target drafting, but it's not towards a big picture. And I kind of referenced it earlier when we were talking about mock drafting. It's towards uh, an expectation for that spot in a draft or for the amount of dollars you're paying in an auction. You can use history to map out drafts. And you know, we've done this to show that declining the declining value, the you know first few rounds are big steep between values, and you know later in the draft the amount between consecutive players isn't all that much. That's the same sort of thing, but you can actually get an expectation for the player relative to that first pick, tenth pick, twentieth pick, whatever, using using history, and you know it, it's you know the composite player you know, sort of level, it smooths out the production, the home runs and the robbery. You know, you don't have a guy like Adam Dunn isn't a composite player because, you know, all the power, low average sort of thing. But what I've done is, and I, I, I found out, I determined empirically, I'll call them equivalents, home run equivalents, you know, how many home runs equals how many RBIs equals how many steals, so that you can sort of convert the real player to a, a composite player that you can compare, and you can just see, are, are the stats equal? I mean, if you want to pick a guy at a particular round, how close to expectations is he? You know, he's four homers and two steals short. Well, what's it going to take for this particular player? I mean, dollar value-wise, ranking-wise, he's not worthy of that spot because, you know, it's a $10 player and, he, you know, you're paying 12 or, you know, sixth round fifth pick and he's ranked seventh round first pick but if you look at it the other way and well four more steals and 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 two more homers and a couple points of batting average and he'd be on that spot then ask yourself the question what is it going to take to get there well we uh we tempered his playing time because he got hurt last year or or you know he's he's a a third year player we think he's going to play full time but we're not sure so we're you know shy on the at bats and all he's going to need is another 50 at bats and bing he's got that spot well, now it's it's a little more reasonable to jump them up the rankings or to pay that extra dollar. If you actually have a, a tangible expect, you know, I need three homers is all I need. And the man, you know, there he is. He's on that line. So that's what I use the target drafting for is to sort of how close to the comp, what do I need to make him actually worthy of that spot? And is it a leap? Because especially in a draft, if you if you if every single player meets the expectation of that draft spot, you get an average team. You need to find ways to get a better return on your investment than is expected for that spot. Sometimes you need to take a chance. Sometimes you need to take a chance on Matt Adams getting thirty five and not fifteen and paying for twenty five so that you can get, you know, the, the extra stats that you need to separate yourself from the pack. But at the same time you can't bid as though 35 is a is a sure thing. No, 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 no. You you it's more of it's more of paying uh instead of paying 30, you know, if it, it, no, you don't, but there are certain times where you will go the extra buck or use it as tiebreaker or jump him up the rankings a little bit. Because all you know, all he needs is to hit lefties just a right. little bit better. Or to me, one of the better uses of it, and we, we talk about this a little bit, but this is to me a way to really see it. 
all these injury the the Troy Tulowitzkis and and all, all those players that we just we we assume are going to miss time. Carlos Gonzalez. If you add in or or in a, you know add on uh, some replacement level stats, even if they're from a, a you know a terrible player or not as good as a player, you know you can now justify taking an injury prone player a little bit ahead of where you know rankings assume the player plays the entire year and that no one else plays that spot. It's sort of sort of a fallacy or a flaw with, with, with valuation systems in that, you know, if there's a 12-team league with 14 hitters, we give 168 hitters positive value. Well, it's kind of a flaw because, you know, with injuries and reserve lists and, and that sort of thing, there's going to be more than 168 players that actually contribute in a positive manner to your team, um, at, you know, because it's... It, if you look at it in terms of lineup spots and not, you know, players or whatever. So that's another, to me anyway, another useful aspect of, of this is, so I look at Ian Kinsler and we, we temper Aramis Ramirez and we've got a built-in hedge for at-bats. Well, what if I, um, you know, if I can use Casey McGahee for, for two weeks and, and get, you know, two homers and seven RBIs, and if I add that to Aramis's stats, where does he now land on the composite player list? Well, I may not pay the full value, but I can split it in half, for instance, and, and, and try to get some return on my investment. It's all really interesting, Todd. Glad you're thinking about it all, all the time and look forward to your continued thinking about these things and coming up with these great new ideas. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com. The home base is MastersBall.com. Always great to have Todd here. We'll talk to him again next Friday. Master Notes is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of Baseball HQ, with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Join us on our spring conference tour. We're bringing our first pitch forums to San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Cincinnati, the Washington, Baltimore area, the New York, New Jersey area, and Boston. Use the code RADIO5 that's R-A-D-I-O number five at checkout to take $5 off your registration for any stop on our tour. And join us for the next best day to draft day. These three-hour seminars are packed with information as well as entertaining activities, making it the perfect crash course for your draft prep. Sign up now and we'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Master Notes. And I'm happy to report that I've joined the rotation, bringing Master Notes to HQ Radio listeners and to email subscribers as well. This week, I want to talk about unlucky pitchers. In assessing and projecting player performance, a core principle at BaseballHQ.com is the importance of understanding and managing luck. We all know players are going to get lucky or unlucky, and really that's what makes fantasy baseball unpredictable, and that's what makes it interesting and fun. And of all the counting stats in fantasy baseball, the one that's most prone to luck is pitcher wins. There are some stat sites out there that include statistics that seem to address luck in pitcher wins, but the stats depend too much on quality starts. Listen, a 450 ERA is not a quality start for me. So I turn to a better metric, BaseballHQ.com's Pure Quality Starts. PQS is a more precise measure of pitcher performance that looks at every start by pitcher skills hits, walks, strikeouts, and home runs, as well as innings. PQS scores go from 0 to 5. 0 and 1 are the worst, they're classed as disasters, while 4 and 5 are the best, and they're classed as dominant starts. 
I gave every pitcher luck points for every start, ranging from a very lucky plus three points for a win in a PQS zero start to a very unlucky minus three points for a non-win, that is a loss or no decision, in a PQS five start. Then I added them all up. And guess what? It turns out it's really rare for pitchers to get lucky wins. In 2013, pitchers won only 3% of games with PQS scores of 0, 1, or 2. But it was really common to be unlucky. The average luck score overall was minus 11.5, and 38% of starts qualified as unlucky to some degree, including 11% of starts where the pitcher got a PQS 5, which means a start as good as it could be, but didn't get a win. I also looked at individual pitchers' total luck scores, and I sorted them from the luckiest to the unluckiest. Nobody turned out to be especially lucky, which is what we'd expect given the overall results. But there was a whole pile of bad luck starters, including 28 different starters last year who had luck scores of minus 30 or worse. So let's look at the five unluckiest pitchers, including ties. The unluckiest pitcher in 2013 was Cole Hamels of the Phillies. Hamill's bad luck started when I bought him at the Tout Wars Mixed Auction for 25 bucks, and it only got worse from there. He finished 2013 with a luck score of minus 49, and his horrendous luck included nine winless PQS5 starts and nine more winless PQS4 starts. Steven Strasburg was next at minus 44 in what was a disappointing year for him and the Nationals. Then came the real surprise, you Darvish of the Rangers. He had 13 wins and a terrific year, and he was unlucky. His luck score was minus 42, thanks to 17 winless PQS 4 and 5 starts, including a mid-season streak where he threw six dominant starts in a row and didn't win any of them. So think about this. If you Darvish had won even half his unlucky starts, he'd have had 21 wins, maybe 22, added 8 bucks to his already impressive roto value, been the equal of Max Scherzer, and he would have made the Cy Young discussion a lot more interesting. Carrying on, we saw Chris Sale of the White Sox next at minus 41, then the Cubs' Jeff Samarja at minus 38 in a tie with Matt Harvey, Matt Cain, and Madison Bumgarner. Okay, so how do we use this information? Well, first, remember the Baseball HQ mantra. We want to draft skills and not outcomes, especially when we're talking about stats like wins, which depend on so much more than individual pitcher performance. Keep in mind that pitchers with high PQS averages are better pitchers. Second, we have to think about why pitchers don't win excellent starts. The primary culprits, of course, are poor run support by the offense and bad bullpens. So ask yourself if these situations have changed for any of the unlucky pitchers. Because if they have, those pitchers might be worth the extra buck. And if they haven't, maybe you should let somebody else take the risk. That could be bad news for Chris Sale and Jeff Samarja, since the Chicago teams won't be notably better. Sure, the Sox added Juan Abreu and maybe a few extra runs, but they traded their closer, too. And the Cubs haven't done very much at all. But you, Darvish? I think he looks even more attractive for 2014. The Rangers have strengthened their run scoring with Prince Fielder and Shin Su Chu at the expense of some defensive ability, and their bullpen is something of an embarrassment of riches. Either way, it's an important fact in our game that we can't change luck, but we can manage luck, and one way to do it could be looking for bad luck in pitcher wins. Also noted, 
There's an interesting debate going on in sabermetric circles about a controversial report by Jeff Zimmerman of Fangraphs.com. He reported that in the post-PED era, which seems like an assumption anyway, hitters don't peak anymore. They only decline. Now, how players age is a key component of both projection and valuation, so this debate is important for fantasy players. Keep an eye open this week for a research and analysis report by Bob Berger of BaseballHQ.com taking a look at how hitters age. As well, if you're curious about the new book, Winning Fantasy Baseball, I'll be talking about it with author Larry Schechter on February 4th, the first Tuesday edition of 2014 of the award-winning Baseball HQ Radio podcast, as that's when our show goes bi-weekly, every Tuesday and Friday. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for January 31st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number four of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our regular Friday correspondent, Todd Zola. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with Larry Schechter, multiple Tout Wars champion and the author of Winning Fantasy Baseball. That's our next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.